You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, June 12th. Dr. Minna, do you have any opening remarks? Uh, well, just, there's a couple names I don't recognize, I think. So I'm an Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and of Immunology at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm also a molecular, uh, one of the medical directors at Brigham and Women's Hospital where I help to oversee molecular virology diagnostics. And in general, I study uh, how the immune system uh, interacts with pathogens and how we can utilize uh, information from the immune system to model uh, outbreaks, uh, uh, viruses, and um, in the context of COVID, I've been focusing a lot on testing and all things serology and virology. So happy to take more or less any questions if I don't understand or have a background of it, I'll let you know. Thank you, Dr. Minna. Looks like uh, first question. Thank you, Mike, again for doing this. Um, I think for, for the many of us who hope never to go back into lockdown ever again, one of the really central questions is the relative contribution of the different mitigation measures that have been used uh, to flatten the curve here in Massachusetts, New York, other places that are hard hit. Can you say, um, what do you see as, uh, do you feel like we have good enough data to hang our hats on, on that at all from what we've seen so far? And, and, and what would you highlight as some of the more important, who, who's doing that research? Who, where should we be watching for the folks who will be figuring out the relative contributions of say social distancing versus masking versus hand washing versus shutdowns, all, all the other stuff that you can do? Thank you. So you're, you're essentially asking what are the relative contributions of non-pharmaceutical interventions to uh, reduce transmission and reduce risk um, and, and reduce overall outbreak size. Across. Right. Um, and I think that, um, uh, so certainly some of us are doing that work, um, myself and uh, uh, some folks in my lab and, um, and in collaboration with some folks at Princeton um, we've been modeling a lot of these um, efforts and uh, uh, other people in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics are also doing the same at uh, Hopkins. So th there's a lot of, a lot of the, the core sort of epidemiologists in the infectious disease modeling world are certainly, um, now that we kind of have some grasp of what, how this virus moves um, when it's unabated, uh, there's a lot of effort going in by all the groups to understand what mitigation strategies are optimal and, um, and how they play together uh, to reduce transmission. Um, so I think from, there, there's sort of two different schools of thought, if you will, about how to stop um, these outbreaks from occurring. And one is sort of preventing transmission through things like masks and putting plexiglass between people and institutions and things like that. And then, uh, the other option is to just really be blasting the community with testing and try to detect any uh, infection once it happens before, uh, you know, before it gets out of hand. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is much more expensive than the other, um, but I, I think that they will both certainly have a role here. Uh, if, if you ask me my opinion about which is going to be the most effective or which, what's the simplest, most effective option, 
uh, mask wearing. I think there's no doubt about that, that just wearing, if everyone adhered to wearing masks, which we have to be realistic and assume that's not going to be the case. But if they did, we probably would keep uh, R0 below one. Uh, and we, we probably would not have outbreaks run away from us. What we're seeing and you know, our community and our country and our, our society in the US anyway is not accustomed to wearing masks and the discomfort that comes with it. And so I have a hard time believing that that, that will be the solution everywhere. But it does lend itself. We've seen a lot of data now. If we look at Hong Kong, for example, Hong Kong did have cases. Hong Kong is extraordinarily densely populated, but it really didn't have any big outbreaks. Um, and that's probably, uh, I think, more due to mask wearing than exceptional contact tracing. Uh, and so in that sense, I think mask wearing can be a, a just a, a, it alone can be a game changer if we as a society collectively decide that we will adhere to, to those rules. Um, I think social distancing and keeping uh, apart, that will, that will work, but it comes at an extreme cost. And that cost is both economic, but even if we were able to keep all of our businesses going, uh, I look around at our own, at the research uh, institutions and I, um, for those people who are in the labs or, or doing computational work to you know, research this virus or, or their normal research, um, you know, it's hard to see the long-term, uh, it's hard to see that happening long-term in terms of morale. And that's gonna be the same in every, every institution, every type of business. Um, when, when you have whole populations sort of staying home, even if they're working home and keeping the economy running from home. I worry very much that uh, morale will get very low. So I don't think it's a sustainable solution. Um, but mask wearing on the other hand is quite sustainable. That one super quick follow-up. Can you, can you apply, can you give any number at all to the, even a very preliminary one to the difference that mask wearing makes? Probably a lot. Um, I mean, if both, uh, if I think there's been some, I haven't personally um, included mask wearing into our models that we've been running, which have been mostly focused on testing strategies. Um, but if you have two people both wearing masks, uh, I think it will probably cut down on likelihood of transmission by over 90%. Even having a pretty, uh, uh, a, a low quality mask could, uh, I think, really cut down from an infected individual. It might alone cut down on transmission quite a bit just by reducing the droplets that go out into the air. And so I think that it, would, that it will do a very good job. You know, and it doesn't take, we don't have to cut transmission by 90% to get R0 below one. And that's the important piece. We don't actually have to prevent every infection. And I've been sort of changing as I've, continued sort of advising and being on all these different reopening groups and advisory boards and things. What I'm trying to push people to start thinking more in line with is looking at this as a marathon and not a sprint, A, and B, that uh, we should try to change our approach from this idea that we have to stop every infection to we have to stop every outbreak. And I think when we start thinking about stopping every outbreak, then all of a sudden the tools that we normally utilize for public health monitoring and control become uh, 
present again and, and very powerful. Uh, we, we allow a little bit of leeway. We don't have to have everything perfect, but as long as it's good enough, we will stop the outbreaks from happening. And, and I think that's a pretty important piece here. Great, thank you. Next question. Hi, uh, thanks for doing the uh, call. I want to ask about uh, batch or grouped testing, and I'm talking about in which you take a whole bunch of swabs and uh, run them on one test. Um, I guess the idea is it's more efficient, saves time and money. Just want to know if you can quickly explain uh, how it works, some of the benefits and drawbacks, and, and most importantly, whether any businesses, states, or countries are, are doing it already and how it's going. Thank you. Yeah, so we've been researching that um, both theoretically and then backing it up with some empiric um, analyses of samples. Um, and uh, it can be extraordinarily efficient. And again, if, you're, if your goal, there are a few things that, that make it difficult, but if you can get the logistics in place, you could reduce your costs or the number of tests you have to do tenfold, if not a hundredfold. Um, you could potent theoretically, you could pool a hundred samples into one and, and run all of those. Uh, and that's because the viral loads that we're concerned about uh, stretch across many orders of magnitude. So from, from 10 viruses per microliter to, to a trillion viruses per microliter. So if we're just, if we're pulling even a hundred samples, if somebody has, uh, if somebody's viral load is a billion and you pull a hundred samples together, then you're still going to have a viral load of 10 million in that pooled sample. So it's still going to be very easy to detect. And, um, and if your viral load is so close that diluting out just by a hundredfold is going to lose the signal, then you're not actually running that much. That person probably wasn't infectious anyway at that point. And so, because uh, that would be a very low viral load relative to a trillion. Um, so the point is you can actually um, pool huge numbers of samples theoretically and still get a very good signal and be able to detect outbreaks. The difficulty is then if you get a pool of 10 people or 100 people, what do you do with that information the moment you get that result that says positive? Do you then have to call up all 100 people and tell them that they need to go home immediately or put on their mask and, and you know, not not move, you know, whatever it might be, or and then you have to kind of go back and retest them all, for example. Uh, so it could be a very anxiety-provoking effort if you uh, if there's a long duration of time between telling somebody that their pool was positive to getting them their individual result, and that's always a that's always a problem that um, that we think about when it comes to turnaround time of tests. Uh, and especially when you have like, this would be called the screening test, which would be, very, which would be sensitive, uh, but not specific to the individual. And then you'd have to go to a very specific to the individual test. And that window, the shorter you can make it, the better if you're doing pooled testing, because we don't want to have people living in a state of anxiety for two days while we, while we um, repeat all the tests. Um, there are institutions, I, I can tell you from my experience, um, sitting on a lot of committees at uh, quite a number of different universities across the country at this point um, about reopening. Uh, I would say that, that this, this conversation continues to come up in industry and universities and everything else. Um, pretty much anywhere where you have uh, leadership looking at how to keep their, 
their, their constituents safe, I think that the question of pooling is now arising because people are figuring out how are we going to test this many people and, and not drive ourselves into the ground um, financially. Even a place like Harvard with its large endowment has to still be considering this because it can, if, you're, if you say that you're gonna test 5,000 people daily at a test that costs $50, you know, these are just examples that ends up becoming extraordinary, extraordinarily expensive. Um, so I think we're going to see this continue to become uh, an increasingly utilized tool. I don't know if anyone that's using it at this very moment uh, as their as their actual policy. I think there's a lot of experimentation. That said, um, we have been uh, my research group and and some others at the School of Public Health have been advising different policymakers in Sub-Saharan Africa uh, about how to potentially use these pooling strategies uh, for different reasons. I mean, they're very resource constrained. They only have so many tests that they can run. And so uh, they are very interested in, in pooling strategies for um, just to figure out how to get the people tested that they, that, and, and not, not so much having to do with cost, but just material. And um, so both of these are, uh, happening, and I think we should anticipate seeing pooling become a very important part of the way that we monitor for these um, for these viruses in the future. Thank you. Next question. Hi, Dr. Mina. Uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, just to follow up a little bit on the colleges as they're trying to figure out their recommendations, including on testing. Is there a um, a certain frequency that would be required uh, to be meaningful? Would you have to test, say, twice a week, uh, every student, every faculty member? Yeah, so it really depends, um, again, on what, um, how you're approaching this. If testing, if your goal is to prevent every single infection, then yeah, you probably want to test every single day. Um, that's not reasonable. So if your goal is to prevent every outbreak from growing, then you have a lot, there's a lot of range. I would say, Testing once a week, again, and I'll come back to this, because um, I, I think testing once a week can be a powerful tool. Um, but you, if you can work with an adaptive strategy, so if you test every one day, every two days, every three days, uh, and maybe even every four days, uh, I think that the, all of those will pretty much stop most spread. Um, but testing everyone, that, that assumes comprehensive testing of every single person every one to four days. That is um, still very, very laborious and difficult to do logistically. Particular places, it's one thing for you know, universities and, and institutions in Boston to approach it that way because we have a number of testing facilities right here in Boston. But if you're out somewhere else uh, where testing is hours away in terms of the laboratory, it makes it very difficult. Um, so what I am beginning to advocate for is much is to have an adaptive strategy to testing to control outbreaks where you have some routine surveillance. It's not comprehensive. It could be done I, for various reasons, serological surveillance, just doing sort of the, the routine surveillance over time could be with antibodies. It's cheap. And the important thing with antibodies is that once somebody develops them, they stay. So your sensitivity gets extraordinarily high at the population level to know that an outbreak is starting. The problem with antibodies is that you won't 
find those first cases. But if you can switch gears very quickly and say, okay, we're going to be testing on a routine basis for antibodies. Uh, uh, every, you know, maybe we test, we have a rolling, a rolling um, testing strategy where every person in a community tests themselves once a month. And so you get a certain fraction of people on, on every day. That will give you a lot of power to detect that an outbreak is starting. And then once you detect that, which would probably be one to two generation times of the virus in, then you throw it, all the PCR and daily testing and comprehensive testing into the mix to find out exactly who's infected and you can, you can stop it quickly. And that's where I think we have to start, if we want to use approaches like that, which can greatly uh, increase efficiencies and reduce stress of doing all the testing, in particular at times when community prevalence is low, uh, we just have to be willing to tolerate a few infections. Uh, and in many ways, this is the whole idea of flattening the curve anyway. The idea was never to take this acute respiratory infection that has the ability to spread like wildfire and prevent every infection. If this was Ebola, I wouldn't be saying this, but this is, uh, this is not Ebola. Um, and I think that our goals should be realistic. And, and if we allow ourselves to say we want to just have a good system that's good enough to detect outbreaks early and then battle them using uh, by throwing in sort of all of the uh, all of the artillery, if you will, then I think we have a lot of opportunity to be flexible and figure out how to do this in a very efficient manner. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks again for doing these. Um, so picking up on what you just said uh, about the, what our goals, you know, policymaker goals should be, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on some of the news of the last couple of days with Oregon and Utah and, and I think Nashville pausing their reopenings in the face of spikes uh, that they're seeing. What do you make of, of how policymakers should react to these spikes that we're seeing in a bunch of different places? Well, I think so far, a lot of the conversation has kind of been binary. It's been, um, uh, we're, we're opening and, and we're just opening, you know, and I understand that there's been phases, but it's sort of been this binary um, approach. And I think that there is room for ad adaptation during the process. Um, uh, in terms of them sort of saying, okay, we have to stop all of opening, I think that might be fine if they ha are having, if they're seeing that the outbreaks are getting away from them, uh, then, then there is room for potentially slowing down or even reversing um, opening strategies. I don't think it's ideal. I think that the economic consequences of of sort of fluctuating and closing down society are just extraordinary. Um, if there's some workarounds to say you um, mandate uh, very heavily uh, mask wearing, for example, then maybe you can, maybe people won't do that for years, but maybe people would do that for three weeks at a time. So if there's a burgeoning outbreak, you can, uh, absolutely mandate that people wear masks whenever they're around other people in the workplace or otherwise, you know, with the exception of being at home. And maybe that alone could really work to uh, reduce some of these outbreaks that do seem to be getting away as, as reopenings happen. 
Um, but I think one of the problems is a lot of the reopenings have been happening without the, without the testing and true surveillance networks in place. And so it's leading everyone. If I was a policymaker and I started seeing cases going up and I don't yet have a robust surveillance program in place to know how to stop it, then you have very little choice. Either the mask wearing ends up working and that would be great. Um, but if, but in their shoes, the, the last thing they want is to have a massive outbreak um, under their watch. And so in that sense, they have to roll things back. All of this is coming from this idea that we spent the last, you know, the testing has been front and center of this entire epidemic since it started in China in December and has been extraordinarily front and center in the US. But nevertheless, we still have not gotten uh, the serological surveillance system set up. We've gotten a lot of virological testing set up and that's great, but, and that should be really used when there are outbreaks happening. But we, we need to set up surveillance systems that will allow a policymaker to know where are the outbreaks coming from and then work with epidemiologists to understand how best to squelch them when they, when they start arising. But right now, most places continue to fly blind and that sort of handcuffs people or ties their hands behind their back and forces them into a position where they're, one of their only solutions is to close down again. And uh, you know, it's why some, some people have been advocating so much that we needed to spend the last few months getting true surveillance systems set up and, and ready to go. But most places they just don't exist. Thank you. Next question. Hi, thanks so much. Um, here in Minnesota, the uh, Mayo Clinic uh, this week uh, said it had developed a test for uh, that they say is will be broadly commercial, broadly commercially available to identify neutralizing antibodies. I wondered if you had heard about that and if you had any thoughts on its significance. Yeah, so there's. Um... It depends. I haven't actually looked at what exactly they announced. A lot of people are saying that they are. Uh, so there's there's antibodies bind to different parts of a virus. If you just do um, a basic ELISA for a coronavirus, you could get antibodies that bind to any different sides of the proteins that are in that test. And why that's important is a, a regular binding ELISA will tell you that there's antibodies that are specific to the protein, but they won't tell you how they're affecting that protein or the virus. So as an example for, um, for others who might not be familiar with these aspects, um, if, if I was a virus and, uh, and there were antibodies being formed against me uh, and somebody uses, uh, you know, is measuring those antibodies, I could have all the antibodies in the world binding to my shoulders, but they won't really affect my ability to thrive, at least not considerably. But if there's antibodies that are binding to my face and covering my breathing, then they are going to affect my ability to replicate and thrive. And the same thing goes for viruses. You can, an antibody binding to certain parts of a virus may or may not be crucial to preventing that virus from replicating. So neutralizing antibodies do prevent uh, viral replication, usually in this case by binding uh, somewhere that prevents the virus from, from being able to itself bind to a cell. So if, it, if your antibody comes in it 
binds to a virus and that virus can no longer attach to a cell because that antibody is blocking it, then that can be a neutralizing antibody. So what a lot of these assays are saying now is that uh, there are, uh, that we, we know so well exactly how the virus is binding to a cell that we can guess with pretty good confidence that if an antibody, if we take just the piece of that virus that binds to the cell and we put that into a test and, and we find that an antibody binds to it, then almost, then we can be fairly certain that if that was a real virus and the antibody was there, that it would be obscuring that virus's ability to bind. So it's not exactly a neutralizing assay in the sense that you're not actually watching uh, the virus not be able to replicate in tissue culture, but it's just so well correlated with, with it based on by virtue of having only this very, very specific piece of the protein in the test that you can make some pretty good um, guesses that these antibodies will be neutralizing. Now, whether the Mayo Clinic is doing that, which that would still be an ELISA-based test, but it's just extraordinarily specific to the receptor binding domain, whether they're doing that or they've actually come out with some commercially available true viral pseudotyped virus neutralization assay where you actually have live virus and then you're putting somebody's serum in there, that's, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure what exactly, what, what their assay is, but either way, these are important technologies to be bringing to market. And, um, and I think they'll be crucial for understanding vaccine responses, for understanding if people are truly protected after they get infected, uh, and for understanding what the duration of those uh, protection um, levels are after somebody's infected. So these tests are going to be crucial. Okay, thank you. Next question. Hi, uh, thanks for doing this. Um, you know, there's, there's been a lot of concern about that the U.S. Is, is reopening too fast, or at least certain states are, as we see, you know, states relax stay-at-home rules, even in places where we're seeing cases and hospitalizations still rising. I was just curious, are we seeing any states that arguably are in a decent position to move into the next stages by virtue of having succeeded in, in you know, building up the necessary testing and tracing capacity and, and hospital equipment? And, and staffing, as well as uh, seeing, seeing falling caseloads at this point? Is there sort of a, a gold standard or you know, even like a silver standard at this point? Uh, I think Massachusetts is doing a pretty good job um, at that. And uh, you know, there's a fairly robust contact tracing effort. There's a number of pretty high throughput laboratories that are able to help facilitate the testing when needed. And uh, people have more or less been pretty compliant with stay-at-home orders and uh, or with social distancing uh, on their own. And, and we are seeing people getting back to work. Um, but in general, when you walk around, you see that people are wearing masks. They're not having big gatherings and huge parties and you know picnics and things like that. So I think that in general, the that and we and as a result, we have continued to see declining cases in Massachusetts. And our goal, I think, would be to get to around two, two cases per 100,000 people. And we are, um, and it's continuing to get there, you know, maybe by the end of the month. Um, so, so there are examples of where this is possible. And I think that it just requires a little bit of, of maintaining the status quo in terms of social distancing when you can. 
Uh, of course, Massachusetts didn't start opening up a month ago. It just started opening up recently. And um, so we'll have to see how it goes. We are a pretty densely populated state. Um, and so, you know, there's a chance that it could, that we could see the cases plateau or increase, but uh, I have, I, my hope is that we won't see that, that we'll continue seeing declines. Um, for states that are opening up uh, and taking, there, there are some states where the culture is just, you know, that, not to take it seriously. And in some places that's because of leadership, um, you know, there's, whether it's political or otherwise, I think that we're seeing some some governments of states just not really want to take all of this as seriously as maybe they should. And there I think we're seeing uh, a trend towards increasing cases and that is worrying. Um, it's particularly worrying for me at the moment because if we assume that this virus is following the normal seasonal patterns of coronaviruses, then right now, June, July, and August should really be the absolute minimum uh, in terms of when transmission of coronaviruses, seasonal coronaviruses is usually seen. And uh, so it is worrying that even despite a normal um, valley that we should be in, if we're still seeing rising cases in some states or, or renewed rising cases in many states actually, uh, it does make me a little bit nervous that if, they, if that trajectory remains, A, they'll just keep building up more and more cases. It could uh, overload some of the healthcare systems but if that continues into the fall, we might see a, a massive burst of cases in many of those locations. And uh, you know, we're worried about it everywhere. So places that are taking so few safeguards that they're going, that they're continuing to have increasing cases even right now, I, I think that that's a pretty scary thought. Can, just as a quick follow-up, can I ask if there's any, any particular states or set of states that you're, you're particularly worried about for, for those reasons right now? Uh, I was looking at the map and some of the charts yesterday. I, for, I, I, I wouldn't want to get it wrong, so I'm not going to say the individual states. And I haven't been too close to the individual policies that they're each putting in as much as just kind of monitoring sort of basic trends. Um, but I can, if you want to send me an email, I'm happy to. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Next question. Hi, th thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, I'm curious what is known about whether the, these huge protests and demonstrations about ra racial justice have led to new infections or outbreaks and, and how and if um, researchers can figure that out. So it's certainly been a big topic of discussion and um, of concern. Uh, I think that we, it's being monitored and we're trying to look for example for spikes in cases uh, a week or two after the protests, if not more. And so some of these, you might not see, a lot of the protesters are younger. And so uh, if cases were happening amongst those, uh, the individuals within the protests, you might not actually recognize that transmission had occurred um, at the time and even within a generation of the virus. Um, but it might actually take a few additional steps of spread before you get uh, before those cases that might have arisen in the protests to sort of spread out into the community and start hitting um, individuals more likely to end up in the hospital and have or, or get symptoms that requires them to go get tested. And so, so I think we're, we haven't seen huge spikes as a result. There's been some places with some increases, 
um, it's hard to necessarily disentangle the protests from uh, from more or less everywhere has had some simultaneous reopening uh, efforts and uh, so we're trying to be very cautious before you know coming out with any claims that that it is or is not as a result of the protests and um, uh, and we might have to we might still be in a waiting period before we before we see any of the effects if any of um, transmission within within those settings um, but we have seen for example uh, areas we do know that when people congregate including younger people in college and, and otherwise um, congregate we do see cases starting to arise so a lot some some of the big universities brought back court teams and uh, there were some reports uh, last week or two weeks ago now of increased cases among some of these athletic teams so we do believe that yeah, there's a real risk, uh, and we're we're trying to monitor closely to see if anything does show up in a, as a strong signal. And just just as a follow up, will it will it will the evidence mostly be timing, or will it be based on um, you know uh, detailed contact tracing to 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 trace the source back to someone who was at a protest? Uh, it depends on how sophisticated the analysis is, and so. Uh, if you you can use both timing and geospatial type of uh, analyses to understand, you know, there was a, a, a cluster of new cases over here, over here, and over here, and you know, in all three of those locations, there were pretty massive protests in the last three weeks. Whereas the odds of similar cases happening in a place where there were no massive protests are much slimmer. So, so I think we, we don't even have to do the very detailed contact tracing to pin it down to um, single, uh, in, down to types of events, as long as there's enough of those events that we could start to derive patterns. Uh, so if there was only one protest in one city and, uh, and at the same time there was a lot of reopening, then it would be a little bit difficult to discern. But in this case, I think we'll see enough of, uh, enough heterogeneity uh, geographically and temporarily um, between opening, reopening plans and protests and new cases that I think we'll be able to discern uh, what, what happened, has happened over the last month or so. Thank you. Um, and while we're waiting for another question to pop up, um, one of the things that I've had recently in my inbox has been uh, questions about how we should be interacting with the people that we do know and we're going to be seeing family members and that sort of thing. Is there a safe way that we can interact with the other people in our household and other people in our family that uh, may, we may not be um, socially isolating with, such as grandparents and grandchildren? Is it okay to hug? Is there a good way of doing that? Should we wash hands beforehand? Do you have any suggestions on, on how to get together with others in a safe way? Well, I think it, the most important is to be aware of whether the family members you are getting, you know, whether it's family members or friends, whether those individuals that you're getting together with, say it's for a dinner party outside or whatever it might be, um, if uh, I think it's just extraordinarily important to be aware of whether or not those people are then going to go somewhere else and be around vulnerable people. And that, that to me is one of the most important pieces here. If you know that 
you know, you're getting together with your siblings and all of them are, you know, in low risk categories and none of them are going to go and say hello to very vulnerable people, uh, assuming that your siblings are also in a low vulnerability um, uh, age group, for example, then I think there's, there's not a lot of risk to uh, overall, if it's staying as a very small, closed community. Um, and I would still say, though, you know, there's no need at this point to be shaking hands and hugging, I would say trying to stay away. But if you're, if you're indoors and your family members are coming over regularly, probably if somebody's sick, it's going to transmit um, at some level. I'm guessing that most people aren't going to be wearing masks, you know, at a, if they're having dinner with their siblings, for example. Um, so I think it's just, it's more, the more important piece is just to be cognizant of who those people are going to go back to and be aware that if they're going back to uh, care for an elderly individual in their home, then probably if you have any risk at all that them coming over is going to put them at risk of getting transmission, then I would say just don't do it at this point in time. But for some people who have, I know that for me, I've left my house, you know, less than five times since February, probably, or March. Uh, most of that's been because I've just been working so much, but, uh, but I think my risk of being currently infected is so exceptionally low. Um, but if I start having friends come over, then all of a sudden my risk goes up, and then you know, my risk of transmitting it to an elderly person that I might be caring for, for example, who's here, would potentially increase. So I think just knowing what the potential transmission chains are is probably the most important factor there when deciding whether or not to get together. Next question. Uh, you know, here, here in Seattle, we're the, the headquarters of, of IHME, and their, their modeling has been, um, you know, very, very high profile, but also somewhat controversial, and the model has shifted dramatically from from its original form. I'm, I'm just curious what your impression is of, of that model, particularly in its current iteration. Uh, certainly, I would say that it, it has improved. The, the first iteration was um, more of a purely statistical model without, um, without what we would call sort of a dynamical component. And um, I don't have to go into detail about the different types of models, but I think that the current model which does use some some elements which are more um, which are more traditionally seen in infectious disease dynamic modeling, where you're where you're actually trying to capture the dynamics of an outbreak, and not um, just sort of use a static sort of probabilistic model to know what it might do, uh, is a smart decision. I think they're able to capture a lot more nuance at this point in time, and and um, and I but I think in either case, you know, keeping um, keeping track of how the model is being used. You probably don't, in a, in, a, in a situation like this where the prevalence uh, and ability for a new outbreak to occur and sort of spread so quickly is, is pretty real, um, then having, um, you probably don't want to place too much weight on sort of what these models are projecting too far into the future. But to understand sort of what the, what the infections have been doing and at the population level, I think at, the, at this moment in time, the IHME model has become uh, quite, a, quite a bit more solid uh, and, and discernible in terms of how, the, how the, the 
the how the projections are, are currently being made and what are the uh, implications for those projections. Thank you. Next question. Hello, hi, Dr. Mina. Um, uh, I would like to ask a question uh, uh, concerning contact tracing in countries like Italy, where the, the at least officially there are, there are not there have been no more cases uh, over the last weeks, and the situation seems to be uh, stable. So I would like to know uh, if um, at this stage uh, there is a possibility for for the government to introduce contact tracing to start all over again, and then try to to uh, identify uh, potential. Um, a potential new wave of contagion uh, ahead of the of the new coronavirus season, which is predicted to be in uh, in, uh, in fall uh, winter, and um, and um, if uh, you, you were talking about a predictive model, uh, answering to the, the previous question, yeah, I would like to know if uh, there will be there will be a kind of a predictions concerning uh, the potential. Uh, uh, outbreaks in the fall, which could be even even uh, worse than uh, the one we experienced in spring. Um, yeah, the two questions. Yeah, so contact tracing, I think now that Italy has really gotten cases down to a manageable, very manageable number, um, hopefully that it's close to very, very few new cases that um, I think contact tracing can be is most efficient at that point. Uh, but to make it really reliable, you have to have some way to um, or just to use contact tracing, you have to have a good surveillance system set up to capture the cases when they start, so then you can go and contact trace and isolate. Um, and uh, so I, I think if those two pieces are there, if, if well, three, if cases are very low, uh, surveillance has been set up, whether that's antibody-based surveillance or viral surveillance, um, uh, and then you have um, quick, readily deployable contact tracing. I think that's a very powerful combination of tools to uh, and, and and situations to be able to uh, greatly reduce um, potential for outbreaks in the future. Um, in terms of predictive modeling with seasonality, I think the the hard part is we still don't really um, I'd say we don't fully understand the different drivers of seasonality. Is it that people stay at home in the winter? Is it, you know, is it that there's um, weather changes in terms of the viral behavior? Does the virus die or desiccate in the heat more? You know, so there's all these questions that make it very difficult without really understanding how to discern them. It does make predictive modeling particularly difficult because all of the data we have so far could be very confounded in terms of the seasonality. It could be confounded uh, not so much by, because we don't know if, if, we, if we were thinking that it's weather that's driving the changes, how do you disentangle weather from um, people's behavior of staying indoors more and things along those lines. So um, it's going to take some basic biology to really understand this more. Uh, animal experiments in different weather settings, for example, and um, monitoring humans very closely. Uh, but I do think that we can start to make some we can make some educated guesses that could turn into that can be incorporated into predictive models, but unfortunately, we won't know until we until we see it um, what exactly is going to be the role of seasonality here. But we are concerned that it will be that there will be a strong seasonal component. Okay, 
a follow-up question. Um, there is a way to, 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 to determine to uh, whether, uh, I mean, which is the, uh, uh, which is the contribution of, of, uh, of, the, of the different factors to, to the down, 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 uh, downward uh, number of cases uh, in Italy or other countries that now they, they are stabilizing. Whether, whether the contribution of the lockdown measures or whether the, the fact that the weather is changing, uh, we, how, how we can actually determine which is the, the, the shared contribution of, of the two factors, the one which is controlled by, by, by men or the government, so the lockdown measures, and the one which is under auto control, which is the weather. There is the way to determine. Uh, so it's sort of the same question, just uh, retrospectively versus prospectively. And I would say that um, there are some ways to do it where you can look at different programs uh, that were used, different lockdown interventions, when those interventions were put into place, and try to come up with, for example, two different communities, one that put interventions in place here and one that put interventions in place here but they have the same weather system. And you can do that across a number of different locations to try to understand what, if any, is the role of weather um, versus um, shutdown measures and man-made and sort of non-pharmaceutical in interventions. And I think that if you can drive those types of, if you can get that kind of data, you can start to un better understand what the role of lockdown was versus weather. And I think that there's a lot of um, papers that are coming out that are doing just that. Um, the lockdown measures tend to be so effective that it could obscure um, any lesser effect of the weather. And so I think um, it's why we won't necessarily know just what contribution the weather would have had in the counterfactual scenario where lockdown measures did occur. But we can use that heterogeneity to try to, if there were some that had pretty mild lockdown measures versus full lockdown measures, for example, we could maybe try to uh, understand relative contributions. But it is a very difficult, it's a very difficult um, epidemiological task. Okay, thanks a lot. Sure. I, again, I have another question. Um, there has been some talk in the, the news lately about the um, upcoming political uh, conventions and plans for those, whether they should move forward or be canceled or how they should take place. Do you have any thoughts about how large events like that should, uh, should take place? Um, with care, I think. Um, <laughs> Uh, we need to be able to vote. We need to have, um, you know, I think that if voting can be done in some way, in political, you know, a lot of politics should be able to be done from somebody's home. Uh, we have a pretty antiquated system. I don't think anyone would doubt that about how we vote in this country. Um, you know, but, but given that probably we're not going to change that between now and November, I think, um, you know, again, wearing masks to get out into um, into the political arena. I mean, for voting anyway. I think having large debates, it just doesn't need, you know, with, with big audiences, it just doesn't need to happen. Having large um, uh, uh, um, con conventions, I just don't think that, I, I think that those are terrible ideas. Um, there's no good reason when people's lives are at stake I just don't think there's a possibly a good reason. You know, if one person 
if our, you know, of course, I, I don't think it's a secret that our president is probably going to go and have his large conventions again, and lots of people show up. And at those uh, places, there it, there does tend to be a fairly high average age of of people participating, and that is um, uh, very concerning for me. I think, you know, I I I just don't I don't support large gatherings and I definitely don't support large gatherings by uh, the leader of a country where cases still are not under control. It just sends the wrong message um, and I would encourage them not to happen for what that's worth. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts before we go? Um, no. I hope everyone has a nice weekend. This concludes the June 12th press conference.